afternoon. We thank council for your flexibility. Our next case is State versus Dahl and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Heidi Williams. I'm here from the North Carolina Department of Justice and I represent the state in this matter. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. In this case, the state asks this court to clarify the scope of relief available to criminal defendants pursuing post-conviction relief by filing a petition seeking the writ of habeas corpus. For well over a century, this court has held that when a defendant is imprisoned pursuant to a valid final judgment entered by a court of competent jurisdiction, the state privilege of habeas corpus provides no mechanism for the person detained to complain. An exception to this rule exists, this court has held, when a defendant asserts that the court impo imposing the final judgment either lacked jurisdiction to impose it or acted in excess of its jurisdiction. Yet here, a defendant has never alleged that the superior court either lacked jurisdiction or acted in excess of its jurisdiction when it entered final judgment against him and imposed the sentences under which he was being held. Despite this court's consistent opinions defining the scope of the rights available under the state privilege of habeas corpus, in a string of modern opinions from the Court of Appeals, all involving defendants convicted of crimes and incarcerated by virtue of valid final judgments, the Court of Appeals has cited NCGS section 1733 sub 2 of our state habeas corpus act as though this provision applies and as though habeas corpus exists as a viable avenue for an incarcerated defendant to seek post-conviction relief. These opinions misconstrue the state privilege of habeas corpus and misinterpret the state's habeas corpus act, which codified the procedural process for seeking habeas relief, a process that has not material, materially changed since the, since the General Assembly enacted the, the act in 1868. The state therefore asks this court to set the case law back on track and to reverse and vacate the opinion of the Court of Appeals and to reaffirm the ruling of the Superior Court judge here. Addressing first the Court of Appeals opinions. So since 1976, the Court of Appeals has issued a series of now five opinions that have treated habeas corpus as if it could provide a mechanism for post-conviction relief of a defendant held pursuant to a valid final judgment. The first case was In Ray Stevens, Hoffman versus Edwards, Freeman versus Johnson, State versus Leach, and then finally that culminated with the, the Court of Appeals decision below in State versus Daw. Yet for well over a century before the Court of Appeals issued these opinions, this court had interpreted the language of both the state habeas statute and the constitutional scope of the right available and held that a final judgment entered by a court of competent jurisdiction bars relief by habeas corpus to a person imprisoned pursuant to a judgment. The state listed a series of, of opinions from this court. The, the opinions on this point are numerous, um, dating back well into the 1800s and up through the 1970s. So do you think there's any possibility that the constitutional, that this court's authority to issue that writ, given the language in the Declaration of Rights, would provide some area where it was available that's not covered by the statute. Do you think that's there? Do you think the statute's just so comprehensive that anything that could possibly be one of the constitutional grounds is covered by the statute? Your Honor, I, I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, it's is, could the constitutional right exceed the the grants of the of the statute right. could there be some issued? scenario out there where it's not really under the statute but you say we still have the power as the court system to issue the writ because of what we have in our constitution it's a restraint of liberty you can't the writ can't be suspended that sort of thing uh, justice Yeats, i i think the answer to the question is that this court has never interpreted the scope of the constitutional right that broadly so obviously this court has the authority to define the scope of what constitutional rights are particularly under our state constitution and a statute enacted by the general assembly can't limit this court's constitutional authority 
However, in every opinion issued by this court since enactment of what is now the Habeas Corpus Act, um, which again was enacted in, in 1868, this court has never ruled that the statute is unconstitutional because it somehow limits the authority of this court. Rather, um, this court has consistently interpreted the statute as if it provides a proper procedural mechanism for the constitutional right that is available. Uh, so in a string of opinions from this court, including State versus Dunn, State versus Webb, Ledford versus Emerson, In Ray Burton, In Ray Palmer, again, this court has always construed the, the writ of habeas corpus, the, the means of seeking relief by habeas corpus is unavailable to a defendant who is being held pursuant to a valid final judgment entered by a court of, of criminal jurisdiction. And this court, since, um, since the founding of the state of North Carolina, the right, the constitutional right of habeas corpus has been deemed limited where once an individual is confined under uh, processes that were consistent with due process um, to be held because they committed a crime and they were found in the course, in the due course of law to have committed that crime, habeas corpus provides no mechanism for that individual to complain. Uh, another point here is that this court has ruled in multiple occasions, like In Ray Holly and State versus Edwards, that habeas review is confined to the record and judgment and relief may be afforded only when on the record itself, the judgment is one clearly and manifestly beyond the power of the court. So this court has consistently ruled that, that when a, a defendant seeks a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, when it, it can be seen from the application that he, is, he or she is being held pursuant to a final judgment, that's the end of the inquiry. And that's how the superior court here treated the, the petition for a writ of habeas corpus. When he determined that the defendant was being held pursuant to a valid final judgment, that was the end of the inquiry and, and the request for the writ was denied. So there's an argument in the amicus brief that 14-4-2 um, doesn't apply here because effectively the, um, the danger posed by COVID amounted to some additional restraint that wasn't obviously authorized by the final judgment that led to imprisonment. Now, how do you respond to that argument? Your Honor, the, this, the precedents of this court have never suggested that the fact that circumstances of confinement, that a defendant may be complaining about the way in which he or she is confined, somehow overshadows the fact that that individual is being held pursuant, when that individual is being held pursuant to a valid final judgment, habeas is not the proper mechanism to seek relief. So, well, has our, has our court ever addressed whether, it, it, I know you talked about the f cases where we've said that habeas is not available once there's a conviction, but those cases were where defendants were trying to challenge something improper about their conviction itself, which we said, you know, it, habeas is not a substitute for direct appeal. None of those cases involved conditions of confinement, did they? Your Honor, I think that's correct and that this court has not specifically ruled on conditions of confinement. However, this court has treated as, as unilaterally um, prohibitive of, of granting habeas relief the fact that a valid final judgment exists. And the state's position is that because the defendant here is not challenging the validity of the underlying judgment or sentence, habeas wasn't the appropriate mechanism to seek relief. Um, now obviously, I'm aware that COVID-19 raised some precarious um, concerns for specifically the prison population and the state was tasked with providing a safe environment for those, those inmates. Uh, however, the fact that there was a crisis didn't somehow alter the, the scope of the privilege of habeas corpus. In addition, there were multiple mechanisms that incarcerated individuals during the pandemic had available to them to seek relief in these extraordinary circumstances. And those could have included anything from filing an administrative grievance with the Department of Adult Corrections to seeking a commutation of sentence or clemency from the governor or pursuing um, an individual civil lawsuit uh, against 
against the entities that were, were holding them. And ultimately, that, that's what happened, and that's how the defendant here was able to secure his relief, was by a civil lawsuit where a settlement was reached with, with the governor. So obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic presented circumstances that were pretty unusual. You know, that was something that this court hasn't had to address at this point. The state, however, maintains that habeas corpus was not the proper mechanism for incarcerated individuals to seek relief under those unusual situations. Can I? Well, I just have a quick question. As you um, noted that the pandemic is now thankfully behind us in a lot of ways. Um, and so I, that just, I do wanna just ask you about mootness and um, the Court of Appeals felt that the public interest exception should apply here because there were other cases pending. But um, I, I'm, I've sought in vain to find any pending case that would be impacted by the outcome of this case. Is the state aware of any reason why this case is not moot based on the notion that there's some other case pending that would be impacted by the outcome here? Your Honor, there are several other cases in the Court of Appeals right now that are currently being held in abeyance for resolution of this case. Um, the three I have listed are, are Edwards, and that's um, docket number 21778, State versus Williams, docket number 22671, and State versus Hicks, which is docket number 20665. Uh, and there may be more than that, but those are the three that I am presently aware of that are currently pending, being held in abeyance for resolution of DAW at the Court of Appeals right now. And those are all cases where habeas is pending as opposed to a motion for appropriate relief? Correct. Uh, petitions for writs of habeas corpus were sought by the defendant. Um, addressing the question of mootness, just briefly. But I, I want to take you back yeah. before, I've got some mootness. No, that's okay. Too, but I, yep. but before we move on from that, so uh, going back, I, do I understand you to say, um, so in a quorum claim, for example, where we're creating through the court system, a claim that wouldn't otherwise exist. We have said you, we won't allow that to happen unless you have no other adequate remedy at law. I heard you making a similar point about saying uh, there were other things that could have been done, for example, bringing the civil suit, seeking injunctive relief to fix the conditions in the, in the prison. I'm wondering though why logically we would have, that would have any impact on whether or not you have access to habeas. In other words, is there like a quorum type theory that you really should, habeas is a last resort if you can do these other things or? Your Honor, not that, not that I'm aware of. Um, I was just putting that out there more as a, an argument that the, the opposing counsel and the amicus brief filed in this case seemed to suggest that, that habeas was this lifeline, this last resort. So my response that there were other avenues available for relief in no way was, was intended to be an argument that if there were not other available available mechanisms for relief that somehow that would require this court to more broadly construe the privilege of habeas corpus. Um, but rather to say that, that the legislature, administrative procedures, other mechanisms in state law do make those things available. Um, so to the extent that the argument is made by opposing counsel that habeas corpus is a lifeline and this court should broadly construe it, um, the state would push back against that argument. So, and just a clarification on the mootness, those cases that are pending in the Court of Appeals, are those also COVID-era habeas petitions? My understanding is that they are. So, I mean, isn't the problem with that that those cases are also moot? So, it, it seems to me that like the public importance exception, we'd have to be able to see, at least I, I realize we're not going as far as like the capable of repetition yet invading review principle, but you'd at least want to be able to look and say, okay, the public importance is there's all these other people that need an answer to this similar question, but um, it seems to me the other people who might have claims also have those claims are moot, and so they don't really need an answer either. Uh, what's your response to that? Your Honor, I think, I think this case does qualify within the public interest exception for, for a couple of reasons beyond just the fact that there are pending cases in the Court of Appeals that raise the first, the same question. Um, so as the court is aware, under the public interest exception, an appellate court may, if it chooses, consider a question that involves a matter of public interest, is of general importance, and deserves prompt resolution. And I think the, another uh, significant factor this court should take into account is the fact that we have now five published opinions from the Court of Appeals that misconstrue the scope of the privilege of habeas corpus and misinterpret the statute 
governing the procedure by which uh, an individual can seek that that relief. Uh, and some, um, well, I want to allow you to finish your answer, but I have a question about those five cases. Okay. Uh, um, can can I please do? Okay. Thanks. Um, yeah, so, so Justice Keith, I think specifically there are cases like, Hoff, like Hoffman versus Edwards where the court used very expansive language to define the scope of the right available under habeas corpus. They stated, whatever the case may have been, it is clear now that the scope of a court's habeas corpus jurisdiction is much broader. And so the concern here, in addition to the fact that there are these pending cases raising the same question, is that litigants can rely on these cases which are the most recent cases addressing the scope of habeas corpus and seem to provide this broad, although the court, the panels in those cases did not ever grant relief um, by habeas corpus, seem to uh, use language that would suggest that this is a broadly available post-conviction remedy uh, that the General Assembly has not yet authorized. But you would agree that the General Assembly could authorize this broad relief, correct? I mean, there's, they, they can't restrict habeas below what the state constitution requires, but they could um, allow relief in these circumstances. If the General Assembly wished to apply the statute this way, they could, right? Your Honor, I, I believe so. So I believe if the General, the General Assembly could alter the, the provisions um, in the statute that say, you know, once there's a valid final judgment, whether or not that would be I guess, I guess I'm not 100% sure on the answer to that question. Well, the reason I ask that question is because of the legislative acquiescence argument that's been made in this case. And um, I think, you know, we, we have Stevens from the Court of Appeals, if I'm getting right, the five cases you're talking about, we have Stevens from 1976, um, Hoffman's 1980, Freeman's 1988, Leach's 2013. Over all that time, um, it's been clear that's how the Court of Appeals is interpreting the statute. So the, it isn't the fact of legislative inaction um, it, in the face of that record over all those years, some suggestion that in fact the Court of Appeals is right. And this, this is an avenue of relief that the General Assembly intends to provide to the citizens of North Carolina. Your Honor, I, I don't believe the, the doctrine of leg legislative acquiescence would apply here most importantly because the, the statute that governs the provision of, of um, habeas relief is really a procedural, it's a procedural mechanism for an individual to pursue that relief. So I guess I would backtrack on, on my earlier answer, Justice Earls, and say it is the responsibility of this court to interpret the scope of the constitutional right. Now, can the legislature craft a statute where it gives a defendant new or different post-conviction remedies Absolutely, and the General Assembly has done that by um, providing an opportunity for defendants to say seek motions for appropriate relief. Uh, so the, the legislature certainly has the ability to provide new post-conviction remedies for defendants, whether or not it could do that in, in contravention of how this court has interpreted the scope of the writ of habeas corpus. Um, I, I believe that would fall to, to this court to determine the scope of, of the constitutional right. Right, but we haven't said that the state constitutional right to habeas doesn't afford a remedy for unconstitutional, allegedly unconstitutional conditions of confinement. We haven't said that as a court. That's correct, Your Honor. And so if this court deemed it appropriate to expand the scope of habeas corpus, obviously it's, it's within the province and discretion of this court to determine how to construe constitutional rights. The state's position, however, is that construing the writ of the privilege of habeas corpus that broadly would be inconsistent with a wealth of opinions that have been issued by this court over the past century. Uh, returning just briefly to mootness, because I know that's an important question in this case. Again, the state's position is that this is a matter of public importance based on the, uh, the pending published opinions from the Court of Appeals, the pending cases before the, the you, Court of Appeals. When oh. you say pending, they've been heard and just no opinions been released? Your Honor, I don't believe they've been heard. Um, How do you know they're being held because they're awaiting a ruling in this case? Because the Court of Appeal issued orders holding them in abeyance pending resolution of okay. DAW. And so they haven't been heard yet? That's correct. Okay. 
That's my understanding, at least, Justice Riggs. Um, another point is, is, were this court to determine that this case is moot, uh, the argument has made by opposing counsel that the proper remedy would be simply to dismiss the case and leave the Court of Appeals opinion below undisturbed. Uh, the state suggests that that would be, if in the chance this court determines that the case is not, or is moot, that rather the proper remedy would be to vacate the Court of Appeals opinion below rather than, than leave it in place. And that's based on uh, an opinion from this court, State versus XREL Utility Commission versus Southern Bell Telephone and Telephone Company issued in 1976, where this court stated that the better practice in, a circum in this circumstance, meaning intervening mootness when a case is pending before this court, um, is to vacate the decision of the Court of Appeals rather than simply dismiss the appeal at the Supreme Court level and leave the Court of Appeals opinion otherwise um, in place. So the state would ask this court if it does determine that the case is moot uh, rather than leaving the Court of Appeals opinion in place to go ahead and, and vacate that opinion. But that wouldn't, <clears throat> that wouldn't solve your problem, would it, uh, to the extent that, that you're arguing that there's these, there, there is this series of cases from the COA that uh, allow for habeas relief in circumstances that you don't think are statutorily permitted. That's correct, Justice Allen. So the state's, the state's primary position is that this case, although moot, is in fact subject to the public interest exception because we have this series of Court of Appeals opinions that have interpreted habeas corpus too broadly. And the state would ask this court to issue an opinion in this case, determine that under the public interest exception, it's appropriate for the court to rule on these questions. Uh, rather, the, the, my argument about intervening uh, mootness is an in the alternative. So in the event this court deems the case moot, uh, the state would ask the court to vacate the Court of Appeals opinion. So I have a, a statutory construction question for you. Um, obviously, there's a, a lot of argument in, in the briefing about um, the meaning of the, the term civil process in 17-33. And as I understand the state's position, uh, it's that civil process is distinguishing civil process from criminal process. Um, if, if we were instead to agree that as a, a matter of history, that the, the term civil process refers to non-military uh, process, um, what, what impact would that have on, on your position that it's, that it's actually 17-4 um, that governs? Your Honor, whether or not this court interprets the phrase civil process to mean civil process um, and criminal process, just not military process, or civil process to mean process in a civil case, really doesn't alter the state's argument about how, how the statute should be applied in the circumstances before the court today. So in the state's uh, primary brief, I make an argument about the, basically the procedural process of, of habeas review. And under that, under 17.4, the, the court who receives a petition for a writ of habeas corpus has to look at the application materials and determine right off the bat before it ever issues the writ, uh, whether or not it can determine if the defendant was being held pursuant to a valid final judgment. And here, from the application itself, the court could have made that determination. And so the state's position is that Section 17.4 required dismissal of the petition at that point. So 17.33, that includes the phrase civil process, only becomes operative after a court issues the writ, return of the person um, who is holding the person who is uh, being detained, issues a return on that writ, and then hearing a hearing is held on return of the writ to, to inquire into the cause of the detention. Uh, the state's position is that we don't even reach that statutory provision because on the, at the application point, the statute required that the petition be dismissed because it showed that, that the defendant here was being held pursuant to a final judgment in a criminal case and he wasn't challenging the underlying uh, jurisdiction or validity of that judgment. Uh, but as Returning to your question about civil process versus um, uh, civil process versus just not military process, uh, even assuming for the sake of argument that that the court should have reached the the statutory section 1733 sub two, 
Uh, the state's position is that defendant here was not being held pursuant to any process. Rather, he was being held by virtue of a valid final judgment. So process is defined as typically, um, I don't have the definition right in front of me, but, but process is, is really being held in a pretrial posture. So a defendant is being held pursuant to, say, a warrant for arrest or an indictment or, or some other thing like that, some, some standard in, in pretrial process. But once an individual has gone through the, the trial and has been incarcerated due to a valid final judgment, that individual is no longer being held pursuant to any process. So for that reason, the state would argue um, that however this court interprets the word civil in, in 1733-2 really doesn't matter to the circumstances here. But can As a follow-up to uh, Justice uh, Allen's question, uh, one of the amici argues that uh, in the context, and again, I understand this isn't the context here, in the context of a uh, of, of a a confinement for mental a mental situation that if the strict rule that you're you're advocating here is applied in that case then people would languish in mental institutions without a way to uh, to free themselves or get themselves free and there was some argument that perhaps 1333 would provide some relief for that are you prepared to talk about that and address the issue that was raised in the amicus um, Your Honor, I, I think I can address it um, at least to the point where I would I would direct this court's attention to its opinion in In Ray Harris, um, where and and also as in the memorandum of additional authority filed by opposing counsel here, he um, also raised two cases that involve individuals who were committed committed um, due to reason of insanity and how they are released. Um, the state would suggest that those cases and the case law governing. Um, Kind of those mental health proceedings are distinguishable here because especially you know in, in the memorandum of additional authority filed um, those commitments essentially were at that time made without any defined process by statute and that was the this court's primary concern was that you were basically relying on either the authority of a single judge or um, a clerk of the court to have an individual committed for mental health reasons, and then there was not a clearly defined mechanism for how those individuals would be released. Um, that's not the case we have here, um, where we're dealing with an individual who was incarcerated through a process that, where he was given due process, a trial, or excuse me, I think he, I can't recall whether or not he, he pled guilty, but re received his um, confinement due to circumstances where he obtained due process uh, and for those reasons those kind of mental health cases are, are not controlling to the, the circumstances before the court here. Thank you. Okay, one quick final question. So I, I think I understand your point here because I think you've stayed principled in the state's position but if the state had created like an addition to the Department of Corrections the Department of Torture and there was a facility where certain people convicted of crimes and sentenced to prison were transferred for incarceration, where they were tortured all day long. The state's position is uh, that's not the sort of restraint on a liberty that the framers intended to be covered by habeas, bring a 1983 suit or something else, but it's not a habeas case. Is, would you agree with, I, I realize it's a hyperbolic example, but is that, that's your position? Yeah, your, your Honor, I'm, you know, obviously I don't, I don't believe that this case in front of the court involves, involves torture um no, I, and i wasn't suggesting what science yeah i this, the state's position though your honor is that is that habeas doesn't apply in the face of a valid final judgment entered by a court of competent jurisdiction so to the extent a, a defendant is arguing that that his confinement that he was being mistreated um during confinement there there should be opportunities for that kind of defendant to seek relief but but habeas is not the correct constitutional or procedural mechanism to pursue that relief. So what would be the right mechanisms? Your Honor, so as the state has argued in its brief, uh, filing a, an administrative grievance against the Department of Adult Corrections, uh, filing a civil lawsuit, a 1983 claim, um, seeking clemency or commutation of sentence from, from the governor, Filing a motion for appropriate relief is a statutory mechanism for a defendant to, to seek relief in, post in certain post-conviction um, settings. So any of those 
could potentially be options for a defendant who is complaining about the conditions of confinement to challenge those conditions. Unless the court has other questions, I'll remain, I'll reserve my brief time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the FLA. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. My name is Rob Haroy. I represent Mr. Daw in this case. Like the state, I would like to address the substantive habeas issues, followed by mootness, specifically that the case is moot with no exception. <clears throat> Here, the court should rule in favor of Mr. Daw. Ruling for Daw affects the guarantees of the state constitution and the protections of liberty set out by the 1868 Congress. This court, as was addressed uh, during the state's opening argument, has never addressed a similar challenge, likely due to the extremely limited availability of the writ in combination with the unprecedented nature of a global pandemic. The line of precedent from the court, supposedly in conflict, is not in conflict with the Court of Appeals opinions. In fact, those opinions are perfectly in harmony with opinions from this court. Beyond that, the, the sky is not falling here. The prison doors have not been flung open for any hardened criminal with asthma to walk out the door. Instead, what we have here is a response left open by the legislature for an unprecedented state of emergency, the likes of which we'll hopefully not see again anytime soon. Even in the application of 17-332, the Court of Appeals and the lower court carefully circumscribed a remedy. The Court of Appeals set a substantial bar that could only be cleared by truly dire medical circumstances supported by medical evidence. Here, even Mr. Daw did not make the cut there. The Court of Appeals decision was faithful, faithful to the text of Chapter 17, to the congressional intent of the legislature, and to the state constitution. I'll begin with 1733, and this section was added in its entirety by the 1868 Code Congress. Uh, there was no exception set out before in the previous habeas provisions. So when we got the six exceptions, those are all new, and I think the court should interpret the statute in a way that gives some effect to those. And I will contend that the reading endorsed by Mr. Daw is the only valid interpretation. Otherwise, the entire section there becomes near superfluous. If you stop at section 17-4, and it's do not pass go, do not collect $200, then 1733 has little to no impact. For example, if we go to the specific exception, which we allege, 17-332, it says where through the, though the original imprisonment was lawful, I read that as saying that the original imprisonment requires that there be some sort of confinement pursuant to a judgment. Otherwise, the legislature could have used the terms uh, seizure, could have used jailing, could have used arrest. Instead, they chose to use the words imprisonment, which I think implies that there, this is a remedy for a judgment. So, counsel, do, do, do you agree that um, before we can get to subsection 2, we first have to, to say that the defendant is in custody by virtue of civil process. Yes, Your Honor. So I asked the attorney for the state um, about the, the impact of our adopting your interpretation that civil process simply means um, process from a civilian as opposed to a military tribunal. Um, are you, and, and she responded by saying it would essentially have no impact ultimately and that the defendant here was not held in custody by virtue of process. Help me understand why that's wrong. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, I think there's several reasons. Uh, the first of which is <clears throat> that if we look at the time and how the term process was used, there was a, a good deal of litigation that went on. I think Adolphus Moore was one of the cases, a, a number of those cases from around that time. 
and even in the years before that time, addressed whether or not the court could step in when there had been a military court-martial. And there was a pretty clear line that was drawn in the sand where the court said state habeas has no play if, for example, someone's a deserter. That falls squarely within the realm of the military courts. And that civil process was intended to deal with civilian life. Uh, I apologize that I don't have the sites available in front of me, but I believe in, in my response brief, I included a couple cases where civil process was used interchangeably with any sort of legal process that could be used to detain someone. In one of the cases that I cited, civil process was actually used to describe specifically a plea transcript or a, some sort of transcript that was used as a result uh, of a criminal conviction and it was used, it was described as civil process. So I, I would say we need to look back to the context at the time, but, but I, th I think beyond that, we can also look just to the language of the exception when it describes it as imprisonment. I think imprisonment apply, implies that there must be some sort of sentence that was imposed, <clears throat> meaning that this must come within the realm of a, of a criminal sentence. And uh, I think to, to strengthen that a little bit further, one other important aspect of the 1868 Constitution was that that Constitution uh, created the funding structure for the first central state prison. And so I, I think we can certainly assume that the, the drafters at that time were well aware that imprisonment means prison that's imposed as a result of a criminal sentence. And so that would be my argument as, as to why that applies, Your Honor. Similarly, I, I think it also goes to, to two other issues. One of those was raised by Justice Dietz here, is that there, there needs to be some sort of mechanism. Uh, my, my analogy that I was going to bring up was someone who had maybe cooperated against a drug cartel and was not being given protection uh, within the state prison system and needed to find a way to get in front of a judge and say, my life's in danger here and there needs to be some sort of lifeline. I think uh, a torture division would, would certainly fit the bill as well, uh, but that, that certainly these exceptions were designed to reach scenarios where someone needs to obtain relief in a hurry and there's no other way. Uh, habeas relief on its face throughout the statute has language after language after language addressing how habeas needs to be prompt. There's penalties if you ignore it and don't respond quickly. You have to do it within the same session of court. And those are all intend to address, intended to address emergencies that can't be addressed by filing a grievance within the prison system, by uh, filing a 1983 action. And I think those also go to the fact that you're going to have prisoners in there who, who don't have the same legal acumen, who don't have the same access to resources, where they could say, hey, I need to file a class action suit or I need to file a 1983 suit. How in the world do I do that? Uh, instead, they can file a habeas corpus that quickly gets them in front of a judge and it gives a judge the opportunity to review it. And, and I think this goes directly into the, the cases that I filed in the supplemental authority, Inri Two and Inri Boyet. And I, I would contend, and, and I'll, I'll give the state a little bit of leeway here because I did file those cases yesterday. Um, but uh, my reading of those cases was that they dealt directly with the statute that was in play. Uh, at the time, there was a statute that stated if you were found not guilty by reason of insanity for a capital offense, then you would be committed to the state prison system. And the only way you could be, I mean, to the state mental institution system, the only way you could be released would be if the doctors of that state system determined that you were fit to be released. There was no other statutory ground by which they could seek relief. Uh, those two prisoners filed habeas corpus and said, there's no grounds, I'm being arbitrarily denied this, 
And there, the court looked and said, based on the Constitution, there needs to be some way to give effect to habeas corpus. And so I think those two cases are directly on point. I also think those cases are, are important when you consider the context. Uh, the 1868 Constitution was the first time that we had a Constitution that included a suspension clause. And so when we're looking at habeas corpus and we're looking at the potential for obtaining relief in the face of potentially no other way to seek relief, I think that suspension clause should, should certainly kick in and provide in circumstances that would be determined by a superior court judge or by the Court of Appeals in this case that there are times where the justice system is able to step in both based on constitutional authority and statutory authority. And, and I would suggest that we read the statutory authority in light, in light of the constitutional provisions that it came on the heels of. What if the state, I, I think one of the arguments the state could make, your friend did make here, is that uh, the restraint on your liberty is the, you've been put in some place you're not supposed to be and, um, and there's, there, there's neither no jurisdiction to do that or some reason why that's in, the entire process is inv invalid and therefore whether it's a mental institution or it's you're incarcerated through criminal process, you're there and you know, the sort of idea of habeas is bring me up, let me come and ex explain why all this happened, I shouldn't be there. But beyond that, the sort of circumstances of the state putting you wherever that is there are other means to challenge some sort of constitutional violation there. And so I, you know, I heard you say habeas is speedy, but a TRO in a 1983 case, in my torture example, uh, you know, that for a violation of the Eighth Amendment could also be equally quick. I mean, what, why do we have to interpret habeas in your view to go beyond just that scenario to some restraint on liberty that includes the conditions in which you're confined. Why, where do we find that in the, in the Constitution? Yes, Your Honor. I, I guess there are a couple parts of that I'd, I'd like to try and unpack. And specifically, uh, specifically addressing the, the last part of your question, when that happens is that when the original imprisonment was lawful, but by some act or omission that has taken place afterwards, party has been become entitled to discharge. And so I, I would say that is a, a fairly limited set of circumstances. So I guess, yeah, so let me refine what I was saying. I mean, I think the response that stays made to that as well, but you're not entitled to discharge. You're entitled to have that condition in the prison corrected. You can do that through injunctive relief in a civil action. And you can ask for that very quickly through a TRO or preliminary injunction if you can show the harm that you're suffering. So why not allow that mechanism to be the way to remedy it? Why, why say that you have to be discharged on that basis instead of just saying let's fix the problem? I, I will say I, I don't know that the remedy would necessarily have to be limited to discharge, but with regard to I think what was the broader thrust of your question is why habeas as opposed to, to 1983. I would say first that I believe the statute authorizes that and the statute provides that that is a prompt remedy, whereas uh, I'm not entirely sure that you could necessarily bring those claims in a 1983 action. Maybe you could, maybe you couldn't, but I, I don't think we have a, a clear outlet where a prisoner could necessarily bring those. and certainly couldn't necessarily bring those speedily. Uh, secondly, Your Honor, I, I think when we're talking about something like a 1983 action and we're talking about potentially taking this over to, to federal court, I think there's some concerns there. First, I, I will say federal jurisprudence has sort of evolved looking at this state court of appeals line of cases and said you, there's an exhaustion requirement where you need to go through this process, including filing a habeas petition with the state courts. But secondly, uh, I would say that throughout our state's history, uh, this court and the Court of Appeals has developed a, a very strong line of jurisprudence that has been, that has been heard throughout the state uh, and that has been 
consistently well-reasoned. It's, it's gone back and forth over the years, but I, I think the state can stand on its own two feet, and I think it would be unwise to take that out of the state's hands and hand the keys over to federal court. I think we should be the, the masters of our own domain in determining to what extent habeas relief is available and additionally what the requirements should be as the Court of Appeals addressed here as far as pleading requirements to reach that stage. I guess I wasn't so focused on the idea that most people do bring 1983 suits in federal court. I mean, you could you can bring one in state court, and uh, you know we also have our own. Our um, sort of state doctrine is mostly, I think, in fact, this, that I can think of entirely coextensive with the federal constitution and all the possible grounds that you would raise, both in this case and in my torture hypothetical. So you could bring a quorum claim if you had no other option under the state constitutional analog. So. I guess what I'm focused on is the idea that in theory you could get relief very quickly because you could come in, make a show, and get a TRO that says move me to a different place in prison or get me out of the torture facility or whatever it is. And isn't that, doesn't that suggest that the, the notion that there's nothing available in the habeas just doesn't really hold water? I, I would say again, Your Honor, I, I think there could potentially be hurdles there that a prisoner could run into, but but secondly, when you when you talk about access to justice, I think we've got pleading requirements that are going to go well beyond a, a prisoner who might be in solitary confinement, someone who might be disabled, uh, that does not have the same ability to to seek that relief as with the habeas petition that guarantees that they're going to be heard in a hurry, and that's going to to guarantee that. It, it, it's not going to have the same detailed pleading requirements that you might see with the 1983 action or some other procedure there. Um, are, are you suggesting that if we don't uh, adopt your reading of 17-33 that our habeas statutes will be constitutionally infirm or might be uh, a, a, in violation of federal anti-discrimination law? With regard to the second prong, as far as federal anti-discrimination prongs, I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that, Your Honor. Um, but uh, I, I do believe that it would certainly run into issues with the suspension clause if the court were not to recognize that in certain exceptions, as set forth in 17-33, a petitioner can challenge conditions of confinement, uh, particularly when those conditions of confinement uh, could be life-threatening. So uh, I, I would suggest that... But, it, but in saying that, that it would run afoul of the suspension clause, you're presuming the content of the constitutional right, you're presuming that the content of the constitutional right, that the substantive right, is coextensive with how you want to read 1733. So isn't that reasoning a little bit circular? To, to an extent, Your Honor, I, I think that, um, you know, does, does fall within the, the purview of this court of, of, of making that decision. Uh, however, uh, I would say if we are to look at the precedent, particularly too in Boyette, with Boyette coming not long after the, the Constitution, these amendments came into play, I would suggest that a reading of the suspension clause that gives prisoners that authority is consistent with the Constitution. Uh, I hope I've answered your question, Your Honor. Well, the question may not have been totally clear, but what I was trying to get at is, if we conclude that, as a constitutional matter, that the, the writ of habeas corpus, that it's permissible to say it's not available to someone who's being held pursuant to a lawful final judgment, well, then the state's reading of 17-33 wouldn't implicate the suspension clause, right? So it just seemed to me that in invoking the suspension clause, you're presuming that the constitutional right uh, means what you want it to mean, if that makes any sense. It, it, it does to an extent, Your Honor, and, and obviously I'm, I'm up here advocating a certain position, but uh, I would say if the court 
were to cut off access to, to habeas corpus, uh, then I, I would argue that that would run afoul of the suspension clause. Um, and and I, I certainly appreciate the court's concern and understand where, where you're coming from, but I, I would argue that it, it would raise suspension clause. Um, with regard to, to mootness. And before you, before you move on very quickly, uh, back to 1733, uh, my understanding of your argument, and you can certainly correct me, but uh, for 1733 to really have effect, it would need to apply to criminal, uh, a, a criminal situation as well as civil. But one reading, at least, at least ostensibly, is that 1733 would solve the issue that I raised with, with your friend on the other side about uh, people who have been uh, confined for mental situations because this is civil, a civil process, and this would allow something post. Now, I agree that this is not before us, and it's not for us to interpret that statute at this point, but since you are reading them together, I think one, one possible reading would be that the civil process mentioned there is specifically for those kinds of situations. Uh, will you comment on that, please? Yes, Your Honor, and I do think it would cover those situations, but I don't think it would be limited to those situations. And I think if you go to the text of 1733-2, the use of the term imprisonment as opposed to commitment, uh, I would contend would address that question. Um, I think there are other circumstances that could come up. Uh, if you look at subsection 5, where the person having custody of party under such, such process is not the person empowered to, by law to detain him. So, for example, if someone were sentenced to prison and the Department of Corrections, uh, for example, sent a certain number of prisoners to a private prison that was not authorized by statute or by Congress, then the person needs to have some remedy to get there. And so I, I would contend that it does come into play. Uh, I'd like to address mootness. I, I think that both parties do agree that this case is moot. <clears throat> I think their disagreements to a certain extent with regard to whether or not the public interest exception applies as well as to the remedy. Uh, I would contend that the public interest exception does not apply. Uh, the public interest exception requires public interest, general importance, and a demand for prompt resolution. I would contend that the fact that there are a small handful of cases pending before the Court of Appeals does not mean this rises to the level of general interest. So what about the argument that we don't <coughs> want to have to answer this question uh, I hope there never is another global pandemic, but in the next global pandemic, or in a scenario, as you described, where an inmate is, you know, fears reprisal by other inmates, uh, or my torture scenario, whatever it is, we don't want to have, wait for the next one of those to answer the question, when we can give that guidance now, so those courts that need to act so quickly, trial level will know the answer. I, I would say, Your Honor, that 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 sounds like the, the state looking for an advisory opinion as opposed to something that is truly in the public interest. I would say in the event that happens, there'll certainly be context. There will probably be further evolution of the law, potentially by this court, potentially in the Court of Appeals, and the courts will be able to address those as they move along. But I, I think the absence of another global pandemic means that we don't fall within the public interest exception, particularly as far as a demand for prompt resolution. Uh, it, it, it seems like there's some inconsistency in your position because you're, you're arguing for what I think is a pretty broad reading of 17-332. You're certainly arguing that it would apply in situations that don't involve COVID. You've given some examples, solitary confinement, you know, uh, for being one of them. So you're arguing for us to, to read it broadly, and yet you're also saying that the public interest exception doesn't apply because, well, COVID is a rare event. So the, uh, help me resolve that, what seems to me to be an inconsistency. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, first, uh, I guess I'd, I'd like to start to sort of go back to the first portion of your hypothetical as 
as far as solitary confinement. I, I certainly don't think solitary confinement on its own provides grounds to, to come to the court and seek habeas relief. I think when a prisoner is, is sentenced to prison by a judge, a judge certainly is going to consider the fact that if the prisoner misbehaves, there certainly could be a, a remedy of solitary confinement. The prisoner could develop various health issues along the way, their family could, and those are certainly things that a judge who sentences someone to prison is, is going to take into consideration. Um, with regard to some sort of extreme scenario that might give grounds to that, uh, I would say that when we get there and when someone has raised that argument, is the proper time for the court to address that. Uh, otherwise, that we're, what we're doing is we're giving an advisory opinion for the state. So are you essentially saying that the, the premise of my question, that you're advocating a broad reading is wrong, that, you're, that, that you would read this to apply only in extreme circumstances and that your client was in such an extreme circumstance? Your Honor, yes, I, I would agree that it applies in extreme circumstances, and I would say the court, the court of appeals looked at it and said, even Mr. Dahl did not rise to the level of, of being in extreme circumstance when it reviewed the various medical records that were submitted. So yes, I am saying that the reading of the statute should be more expansive than the state argues but uh, I'm certainly not arguing that this is something where any prisoner who has an issue comes before the court. I think the, the Court of Appeals has worked on drawing a line and has developed a, a body of law over the last 50 years, and there have been very few grants. I, I think we can also look to the fact that when we look back at those cases over the past 50 years, uh, in, in none of those cases, did the prisoner actually win the case before the Court of Appeals, where the Court of Appeals looked at it and said, I'm looking at what you presented. I, I think you deserve to be released. Uh, in, in all those cases, the state, the state triumphed. And to the extent that we've developed this, this body of case law that the state argues is, is inconsistent with this course precedent, I would say, one, it, it's not inconsistent, it, it doesn't contradict any case from this court. But secondly, Your Honor, well, in addition to legislative acquiescence, uh, I would also say the state never sought review until now. Um, and so it, in those cases, for example, in the 2013 case of, of State v. Leach, uh, before the Court of Appeals, virtually the same arguments that were made before this court and before the Court of Appeals with with some differences were made uh, that the habeas statutes shouldn't apply. Uh, the Court of Appeals ultimately decided there is grounds for habeas to reach it, but this petitioner has not met the threshold. But even in that case, after the Court of Appeals reached that holding, the state didn't seek review like they're seeking today. So to some extent, the fact that we have 50 years of precedent from the Court of Appeals is due in part to the fact that the state has not sought review from any of these decisions where, while they have won the case, there has been language that they, that they take issue with. Counsel, so, I, I know you're running short on time, and I, I apologize. I should have asked this earlier, but uh, in your opinion, what does 1733-1 mean? I would say, as my uh, very offhand answer, it would be a court who did not have authority to order the commitment of a prisoner ordered that commitment. So la lack of subject matter jurisdiction? I, I believe that would, that would certainly be at least one reading of that, Your Honor. Whether or not there could be another reading of that, I don't know that offhand I can give you an answer to that. Okay, thank I, I apologize. No, it, it's certainly a, a legitimate question, and, and I think it sort of goes back to some of the arguments from earlier where I would say this doesn't, doesn't run into any precedent from this court based on the fact that these particular provisions have never come up. Uh, what I'd like to finish with, though, Your Honor, is the, Your Honors, is the question of remedy. 
which I think is where the state and I disagreed as far as if the court were to find this opinion moot without an exception. And, and I will say two points there. First, with regard to the state's quotation about the usual course is to dismiss the appeal of the Court of Appeals, that quote is in its entirety leads off with, while we express no opinion as to the correctness. And I, and I believe that's certainly an important portion of that quote to include. But secondly, Your Honor, this is not an intervening mootness case. This is a case where it's not intervening mootness, it's we've lost an exception to mootness. And so I think the state is strained to apply that precedent. I'm out of time, so thank you for your attention. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. Understanding that my, my time here is very brief, I just wanted to make one point in rebuttal, and that was that opposing counsel suggested that the five opinions from the Court of Appeals are not um, in conflict with any existing precedent from this court, and the state would just want to direct this, this court's attention to In Ray Harris, uh, a case that is cited uh, and fleshed out fully in the state's reply brief, but in Harris, this court specifically said that an individual, under, the exception from 1733-2 does not apply when an individual is committed or detained by virtue of the final order judgment or decree of a competent tribunal of civil or criminal jurisdiction. Thank you, um, counsel. Thank you. Um, the thank state you. would urge that this court reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals. All right.